battle for PointsBet's U.S. operations came to a quick and decisive end, and Formula E's CEO joins us to talk about the All-Electric Racing League. It's Thursday, June 29th. I'm newsletter co-author Eric Fisher, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Fanatics is paying $225 million, sweetening its prior $150 million bid to acquire PointsBet's U.S. operations, which will give them access to a series of critical states where they currently do not operate. Here to help us break down the acquisition, this fellow newsletter co-author and my partner in crime here, David Rumsey. How are we doing? Eric, I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. Uh, you know, this is one of these things that we were all kind of set up for this big battle royale here between uh, a couple of industry heavyweights, Fanatics and DraftKings. So, you know, we had the initial deal about a month ago with Fanatics that they supposedly were going to just make this acquisition and, you know, be sort of clean and easy. DraftKings came in with a last minute bid. Uh the points bet board said that they were going to review this bid and it looked like we were setting up for a big back and forth here and improve just like that. It's all over. And Michael Rubin and fanatics is, is got this going away now. Right. And, and to me, it now kind of seems like fanatics was always going to end up as the winner, but maybe DraftKings was just not going to let them get away with it too easy. You know, they wanted to squeeze every last dollar out of fanatics, which they are paying a higher price for points bet now. Yeah, they did raise their their bid uh, by by half, another seventy five million dollars, but it inflicted some pain here uh, on uh, Fanatics Point, although only a little bit of pain because this company is still valued at thirty one billion dollars here. Uh, but I find it very interesting here that it really sets up a very interesting market battle now that uh, DraftKings and Fanatics will really be competing head to head in a lot of the key states that have legalized mobile sports betting: New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Illinois and the like, that they're going to really be going head-to-head now. DraftKings has an early lead, but now Fanatics is going to come in with those points bet licenses and a whole uh, bunch of resources at their disposal. Right. So how upset do you think DraftKings really is that they lost out on this battle to Fanatics? So from my standpoint, it's yeah, it's sort of like almost a good news, bad news. Yes, you don't want a uh, a market entrant to come in here, uh, but at the same time, DraftKings doesn't have to not only pay that extra money to acquire the company, but a a sort of... uh, uh, underrated element of this whole deal is that there's the purchase price, but then there's another quarter of a billion dollars on top of that in terms of a contracted ad spend with NBC Sports uh, that's part of this whole thing. So really, the full commitment is really something closer to a half billion dollars all in. And you still got a situation where points bet is still way, but yes, they're going to be in these big states, but still way behind in terms of market share. So it's almost sort of a, yeah, good, a bit of a good news, bad news situation for DraftKings. Right, Eric. And you've been all over that story. And I think we all know Michael Rubin's not going to get away with uh, something that he doesn't want, right? He's going to end up a winner at, at some point in his eyes. Yeah. And I think you raise a good point there that uh, if you really look over the last three, four, five years, as they've gone into uh, trading cards, as they've gone into now betting, if they've gone into international sales, if they've gone into uh, high-end collectibles, a bunch of other things beyond that sort of core licensed apparel business on which Fanatics was founded, uh, there really have been very few obstacles along the way. 
you can point to NFTs and what fanatics did with candy and then exiting back out. But that really wasn't about fanatics. That was really part of the, the overall NFT market, you know, and where we are now versus where we were in that space two years ago. Uh, you know, so really there have been very few obstacles that have come along fanatics way. So I think your point is, is a good one here that what Michael Rubin wants, he usually gets. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a story we've been covering a lot and I'm sure we'll continue to cover. Um, another story we've been writing a lot about recently is the Bears who are looking for a new stadium. What the heck is going on there? Yeah, it's it's been crazy. You know, another day, another suburb here. You know, what it started was, you know, Bears were looking to leave Soldier Field downtown Chicago and go out to the suburbs in Arlington Heights. They bought the racetrack property early this year for $197 million and were looking to build a whole mixed-use complex with a dome stadium that could have the Super Bowl and the Final Four and the like. But there's a tax dispute there, and now that's sort of sent them off on this odyssey all over Chicagoland. They've been talking to Naperville. They, you know, Waukegan up by the Wisconsin border has come in. City Chicago is trying to make a revive bid. And the latest we've heard is uh, Aurora, Illinois, uh, you know, the site of the fictional Wayne's World skits and movies here that, uh, um, you know, I don't know if it's party time excellent for uh, for the Bears here, but they've been uh, looking all over the place trying to find a deal where they can build this multi-billion dollar dome stadium and mixed use complex. And it's crazy. You got the number three market in the country that right now can't have any of those major events. And this is part of why we've been covering this story so much is that once they finally land on a solution, it's going to be a really big deal for the entire industry. Yeah, it is insane. I feel like I learn about a new town in Illinois almost every day at this point. And to be honest, I find it a little hard to believe that the Bears would seriously consider um, a suburb so far away. I mean, some of these are 40, 50 miles outside of the center of Chicago. Uh, how do you see this one playing out when and if it yeah, does? I, I think you're right. I think it comes right back to the Arlington. That's that's a property that they actually own, that they know it works for the kind of scale that we're talking about. And, and the distance thing is, is really an important factor here because uh, whether it be Waukegan or Aurora, they would be further away from the home market downtown than than any other NFL stadium, farther away than the Patriots, farther away than the 49ers. It would really set new ground there. And I don't think in a good way. So, and we're talking, yes, it's business as Bears president Kevin Warren has said, but we're really talking about a handful of millions of dollars per year in property tax amid a multi-billion dollar project. So ultimately I do think they work it out in Arlington Heights. Yep. I agree. Well said. Coming up, we have an interview with Jeff Dodds, the CEO of the Zero Emission Racing League Formula E. Senior writer Owen Poindexter spoke with Dodds last week about the ins and outs of the league on the eve of the property's newly completed media rights agreements with CBS Sports and Roku. We'll have that conversation up next. Very excited to be joined by Jeff Dodds, Formula E CEO. Welcome, Jeff. Owen, hi. How are you? Nice to meet you. Doing well. Yeah, great to meet you. So you're pretty new to this job. You're an executive at Virgin Media for 14 years, if your LinkedIn is accurate. Um, How did you make the jump from a media company to a racing company? So, uh, yeah, you're nearly right. So uh, my career split in two halves, largely, Owen. So first half of my career was in automotive. 
Uh, so I worked for Volvo when they were owned by Ford Motor Company as part of Premier Automotive Group. If you remember those heady days, Jaguar, Land Rover, Aston Martin, Mercury in the US and Volvo. Uh, and then I worked for Honda, the Japanese car company, for, for quite some time. And when I was at Honda, they were I mean, they were just massive, as they still are, but massively into motorsports. So they had a Formula One team at the time, BAR Honda, uh, Jensen Button, Rubens Barrichello, their two uh, main drivers. But they were in MotoGP, World Superbikes, British Superbikes. They're in touring cars. They had powerboat racing under Formula Four Stroke. I even think they had a lawnmower racing team, if I remember correctly. Wow. So that sounds dangerous. So a chunk of yeah, very. So a chunk of my time spent in automotive and motorsport um, for the first part of my career. And you're quite right. The second half of my career, um, largely in media, telco, entertainment. So um, as the chief marketing officer, then chief operating officer of Virgin Media, and then Virgin Media O2. After that, big old thirty odd billion pound merger happened in the UK. And in the middle of those two things, I call it a labor of love, uh, two years uh, working as a director for Callaway Golf. Um, so I guess if you look at Formula E and say it's a combination of motorsport, entertainment, sustainability and, and sport more generally, I guess that is what my life has been for the last 25, 30 years of working. So it feels like I've come home, Owen. So we can, so our audience can get to know Formula E a little bit better. Um, I think what most people assume is it's Formula One, but electric. Is that an accurate description? Well, there's similarities. So they're, sing they're, they're single-seater sports cars, and they're you know they're racing on circuits. And um, and I guess if you squinted, you might think they looked quite similar as well, as in they're similarly designed open-wheel racing cars. Um, but there is a load of differences as well. So the first one of those being uh, Formula E has been net zero from day zero. So it's all electric. Um, it, it's There's not a combustion engine in those cars. Uh, so a very heavy pillar of the Formula E story is around sustainability. So that would be the first difference. I think the second is the, the competitiveness of the racing is very, very different. Um, uh, and, and that's not me saying that to criticize or critique Formula One's racing, because I think different people like to watch different styles of racing. For, for what it's worth, I enjoy Formula One. I'm a Formula One fan, but the racing in Formula E is much more competitive. Uh, so if you look this year at the Berlin race, um, over that race weekend, 190 overtakes. I think you saw 110 overtakes in the Monaco E-Prix. Um, and I think for the first, if I'm right, for the first time this season, uh, the person who qualified in pole went on to win a race in Jakarta uh, for the Maserati MSG team. That's the first time somebody's qualified, started in pole and gone on to win the race. So it's a very, it's much less predictable, much less processional than Formula One in the way that it races. And of course, we do an awful lot of bespoke city racing. So a lot of building circuits in city centers, um, as opposed to going to those fixed circuit, those purpose-built circuits that you see Formula One racing on. So single-seater racing, uh, very both very exciting, uh, both absolute elite sport, but Formula E, uh, uh, I would argue, a more competitive style of racing and sustainable at heart, sustainable from day one. Yeah, and the the competition part of that is well taken. I think it would take you know a cataclysmic event at this point for Max Verstappen to not win the you know the drivers' championship and Red Bull to not win the the constructors' championship in Formula Formula One, and that's probably true next year as well. You mentioned the calendar, so your provisional calendar for next year just came out. Uh, Brooklyn is out. Portland becomes the one U.S. race. Tokyo, one of my favorite cities in the world, is in. Uh, how do you select a city for a race like this? 
Yeah, great question. So um, you said Brooklyn's out. Of course, there's three to be races to be confirmed in our provisional calendar. So we have three open spots. And that's not three open spots because we haven't got a clue where we're going to race. It's three open spots because we have multiple possible venues for that calendar. Um, so we're deep into negotiation with various various cities around the world um, uh, to lock those three spots down and to announce them between now and October. Um so you can't quite say Brooklyn's out yet because we haven't announced those three spots. Um, but how do we choose a calendar? That's a great question. So, and, and I would put it into three different buckets. Um, so the first bucket is, um, m- let's call it motorsport heritage. So there are certain places around the world where where they're synonymous with with motor racing. And a great example of that would be somewhere like Monaco. Um, so the, the street circuit in Monaco. So racing in Monaco brings credibility and excitement to racing fans and brings credibility to the sport as a, as a tier one motor racing sport. There are other cities which are incredibly important to our partners um, and particularly our motor manufacturer partners. So if you think about some of our partners, people like Nissan, uh, Jaguar, and they're part of Jaguar Land Rover Group. You look at um, uh, Porsche, you look at Maserati. There are markets around the world that are incredibly important to them because they're vast and they're incredibly fast growing markets. So that would be markets like, for example, uh, China, uh, North America. So there's some places we choose to race because we know it's just incredibly important for the whole ecosystem, including our partners. But there are also some venues that are um, that are really driving hard around sustainability. And then we provide a platform to turn up in that city, in that country, and to raise awareness and to raise the profile of sustainability for a period of time. And of course, our Tokyo race, which if I'm right, is the 30th of March next year, that Tokyo race uh, actually ties in with a very large event in the city of Tokyo around sustainability. So there's various different reasons for being in different locations. What we try and do is to get the balance of that right across the season. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. One of you just mentioned, you know, that racing history. One of the challenges I see for Formula E is you don't have this hundred-year-plus history of, of Formula One or this long history in the U.S., like with NASCAR. Um, how do you get people interested in a race if it's not being, you know, passed down from you know from generation to generation? Um, you, you have advantages, of course, to um, uh, to to starting relatively fresh, but you know, you don't have that legacy that that something like a Formula One does have. Yeah, and I, look, and I think um, legacy is incredibly important. In, in a lot, history, I think, is really important in sport because you look back on on historical figures in the sport who are iconic and iconic moments through history. And you're right; I think Formula One is seventy odd years old, and, and we are we're in our ninth season here at Formula E. A couple of things I would say there. First of all. It's amazing how fast we've grown and how far we've come, considering we're only nine seasons old. So that's the first thing. I think the growth trajectory, um, and uh, um, uh, and somebody will probably jump in and correct me, but I think arguably the fastest growing sport uh, in the world. The second thing I would say there is, it's a slightly different audience, because I think there is a there's a motorsport audience. So a Formula One audience will really like Formula E because it's motor racing, or they won't because it's it's not got the legacy and it's not got the history. 
I'm actually a big fan of um, of two wheel racing as well. So MotoGP, World Superbikes, British Superbikes. I love bike racing, and I think there's some similarities in the competitiveness of the racing. I don't know when you think, of it, but the competitive of the racing, but for me, feels sometimes more like a motorbike race than it does a car race because of the amount of sheer amount of overtaking you get. Um, but I also think we've got a different generation of people beginning to watch our sport, and I would call them the electric generation. So we have a tailwind in the automotive industry every year more and more of the percentage of cars being sold every year being electrified cars or electric vehicles and people are becoming more and particularly younger people are becoming more and more aware of electric vehicles and the need to drive electric vehicles for the sake of the environment and that's a certain audience that has switched on to formula e that might be quite different to the audience you find in other forms of motorsport that have been around for a lot longer you know, I wanted to get into that electric element too. Um, one thing that people maybe don't think about as much, both with Formula E and Formula One, is that it's a um, the research component, the research and development that oh, yeah. the the automotive companies that are involved, what they get out of it, and what it drives them to do. And of course, Formula One is moving somewhat in that direction, with making their cars more electric. But you know, with, with you, you're you're situated right in the that nexus of where pretty much every automotive company is moving. So what does that mean in terms of how you structure the league and your growth plans? Yeah. So it's good to call it out. It's a really, really important element of our series. So if you think about the partners that we're working with, so the manufacturer partners we work with, a number of them have made public statements about within which time frame they want to have either an all-electrified vehicle range or for every model in their range to come with an electrified version. Um, so it's incredibly important to our manufacturer partners. And we have real tangible examples of things they've learnt within Formula E, within the racing series, that been, they've been able to take back into the production of their road cars, of their, of their standard production EVs, and to make them better. Whether that's more efficient, whether it's more um, uh, sustainable, whether it's better performance, but to make those cars better. And I'm relatively new to this business, as you pointed out, but when I talk to the team some of their proudest moments are when they're able to point to big global motor manufacturers that are improving their production cars off the back of what they're learning in Formula E. Um, And when we talk to the manufacturers about advancements and next generations of our cars, the, the, almost the first question they ask us, now bear in mind they run racing teams, so they're all super excited about performance and making sure that they're they're faster, more competitive, but they're also really interested in which bits can we look at changing in the next generation that allows them to learn even more stuff to be able to bring in their, into their production. And just to wrap us up, if our listeners are getting curious about Formula E, maybe thinking about tuning in or even attending a race if there's one in their area, what would you say to someone about why should you check out Formula E? Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of your listeners, I would presume, drive an EV. So they're used to they're used to driving an electric vehicle. And I think it's brilliant to come and see what the cutting edge of performance looks like on a racetrack for the technology of vehicles they're driving. Because I think Anybody who's made the switch, I I switched to an EV some time ago, will know that kind of blistering acceleration that might surprise you when you put your foot down in the electric vehicle, that immediate sense of acceleration. So I think if they're curious about EVs more broadly, come and see the race. I think they'll be blown away by the competitiveness of the race. So I think they'll be really surprised and they're going to see 
world-class racing brands. So let's say, for example, some of your readers slash listeners are based in the Portland area and wanted to come to watch the race. Well, it's on the Portland International Raceway. That's the first thing. So it's on the purpose-built track there where you've had some of the closest finishes ever in IndyCar racing. And there's been NASCAR uh, there. They're going to see Porsche. They're going to see Maserati. They're going to see McLaren. They're going to see Jaguar. They're going to see Nissan. They're going to see uh, Mahindra. They're going to see all these amazing power brands. But they're also going to see two racing brands that have a rich history in Portland. So they're going to see uh, Penske. Um, and and uh, um, if I'm right, I think in the last time you had an IndyCar race in Portland, it was a one-two finish for Penske race cars. And they're also going to see Andretti racing. And I think probably the most famous finish ever in IndyCar on that racetrack was when um, uh, Mario Andretti overtook Michael Andretti in the last straight when Michael had, a, I think, a fuel problem or, or, or an issue with the car to beat him literally by 0.07 seconds or something crazy. So they're going to see some rich history for that racetrack. They're going to see some um, some uh, brands that have a heritage on the track in Penske and Andretti. They're going to see some other big power brands. And the other thing that I think is lovely about coming to watch Formula E is um, it's EV racing. So you're going to be able to talk to the person next to you and you're not going to constantly be having to cover your ears and worry about you know the noise of race cars coming past. You can bring your kids, you can bring your friends, you can talk about the racing as you observe it. And what you'll see is a really different type of audience there. I would argue more of a family-style audience, less of a perhaps a fanatical-style audience, although we do love a, a Formula E fanatic as well. But you'll see a different audience. I would absolutely encourage everyone to come and see it. It's, uh, it's an amazing spectacle. All right. Great stuff. Jeff Dodds, thanks so much for joining us on the show. All right. Absolute pleasure. Thank you to everyone for for either reading or dialing in and, and listening to us chat. That's all for today. Thanks again to Jeff Dodds for coming on the show. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform of your choice. We'll be back tomorrow.